Once more, welcome to all of you. Welcome especially those of you in the overflow, those of you at the Franklin campus. God bless you. It is Hunger Sunday at Woodburn Baptist Church. And with that in mind, open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 58. I've been preaching a message series entitled, Blessed Are the Poor. And uh, as we conclude this series, I just want to say up front what a blessing it is for me to be the pastor at Woodburn Baptist Church. I, I love this church. I love you people. I have been a, a part of Woodburn Baptist Church now for years. I guess in some ways the, the biggest part of my life now. And I just want to say as a testimony to this church and to the Lord uh, that, that my heart for the poor and, and my heart for ministry has been formed by serving with you people, with, with you folks through the years. Uh, I have the privilege as pastor, when I'm preaching sermons like this, I'm not telling you to do what you don't already do. I'm asking you to do more of what you do, and that always is a privilege. I, I know that you folks have a heart for the Lord and a heart for the things that, that matter to God. When it comes to hunger, I've also learned great things about serving the poor and serving the hungry from people at this church. Uh, I've told you before, I'll tell you again about the day I walked into Rich Pond Market back when Rhodes Hester was, was working there at Rich Pond Market. I walked in one afternoon in, in the middle of the afternoon in an empty grocery. There was nobody at Rich Pond Market except Rhodes behind the counter. And when I walked in, he didn't know I was coming. When I walked in, Rhodes was standing behind the counter with tears coming down both cheeks, standing in the middle of a grocery crying. I said, Rhodes, what's wrong, brother? What's wrong today? Something bothering you? He said, no, Brother Tim, I'm just standing here in the middle of a grocery full of food, thinking about all the people in the world who don't have food and wondering why I can't just take it to them. Amazing. It's probably appropriate that on this hunger sunny road, Sester is in Nicaragua, uh, uh, feeding the poor, uh, taking medicine to those who are sick and needy in, in, in that great country. Uh, the things I'm preaching, I, I've learned from serving with you all. But there's more for us to learn. Remember that we are in Kentucky, uh, which means we are ministering in the fifth poorest state in the nation, Kentucky is. Also remember that in Kentucky, one out of seven people is dependent upon food banks. One out of every seven people in the state of Kentucky is dependent upon food banks like Hotel Inc., like uh, Good Samaritan in Franklin. They're dependent on these places for their food. And right now, those food banks are depleted. That is why we're gathering and collecting food this month. It's very important that we work uh, on behalf of the poor. It's important because of what it says in Isaiah chapter 58. So turn there with me. Isaiah chapter 58, first 10 verses. Pretty amazing verses coming from God, coming from Scripture. Listen to what God has to say about our worship and the worship of the ancient people of God. Isaiah chapter 58. Shout with the voice of a trumpet blast. Shout aloud. Don't be timid. Tell my people Israel of their sins, yet they act so pious. They come to the temple every day and seem delighted to learn all about me. They act like a righteous nation that would never abandon the laws of its God. They ask me to take action on their behalf, pretending they want to be near me. We have fasted before you, they say. Why aren't you impressed? We have been very hard on ourselves and you don't even notice it. I'll tell you why I respond. It's because you're fasting to please yourselves. Even while you fast, you keep oppressing your workers. What good is it fasting when you keep on fighting and quarreling? This kind of fasting will never get you anywhere with me. 
you humble yourselves by going through the motions of penance, bowing your heads like reeds bending in the wind. You dress in burlap and cover yourselves with ashes. Is that what you call fasting? Do you really think this will please the Lord? No. This is the kind of fasting I want. Free those who are wrongly imprisoned. Lighten the burden of those who work for you. Let the oppressed go free and remove the chains that bind people. Share your food with the hungry and give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them and do not hide from relatives who need your help. Then your salvation will come like the dawn and your wounds will quickly heal. Your godliness will lead you forward and the glory of the Lord will protect you from behind. Then when you call, the Lord will answer, yes, I am here, he will quickly reply. Remove the heavy yoke of oppression. Stop pointing your finger and spreading vicious rumors. Verse 10, feed the hungry, or or better translated, spend yourselves. That's what the Hebrew word there says. Spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and help those in trouble. Then your light will shine out from the darkness And the darkness around you will be as bright as noon. First, a word about fasting. In the course of this message series, I have have encouraged and challenged you to to fast and to fast along with me. And I have fasted, and I know that several of you have fasted in in the past week. Some of you fasting right, right now, this very moment. I have done in asking you to fast... What scripture never does. Do you understand that? When I asked you to fast, I have done what scripture never does. Scripture never asks us to fast. And it's interesting to note that. Scripture never instructs us or commands us, never. It's just not there. I think there's one place in the Old Testament where the ancient people of God were told to fast. I think that was maybe on the Day of Atonement. Well, we can check that out and be sure of that. But I'm pretty sure there's only one time in the Old Testament where the people are told to fast. There's not a single instance in the whole New Testament where we're instructed or commanded or or told to fast. It's just never there. So when I asked you to fast or challenged you or encouraged you to fast with me, I did what Scripture never does. We're just not told to fast, which is interesting because all through Scripture, God's people fast. Now think about this with me. Never instructed, never commanded. It's not a duty to fast. And yet, all through Scripture, God's people fast. Moses fasted on Mount Sinai, the Scripture says. And just read right through Scripture. God's people are always fasting. They fast in the book of Samuel. They fast in the book of Ezra. They fast in the book of Esther. They fast in the book of Jonah. They fast in the book of Isaiah. God's people continue to fast. And they're never told to do so. In the New Testament, we're never instructed to fast, and yet the early church, they fasted. We read that over and over, that they fasted. And Jesus fasted, and and Paul fasted. No one's ever told to fast, and yet God's people throughout the ages have fasted. So what does that mean, and what does that say for us? If we're not fasting because we're instructed to do so or commanded to do so, then there must be something about the spiritual life. It must be somehow a natural response in the spiritual life, a natural response to fast. Are you following me? If we're not told to do it 
and yet we do it, it must be some kind of response. There must be something in the way we are wired spiritually for fasting. It's a rather healthy and natural response to a few things. And in Scripture, it's always a response to one of two things. Sometimes people fast in response to an overwhelming encounter with God. When they draw very, very near to God, or when God is moving among them in a powerful, overwhelming way, their response is to fast. Take Moses on Mount Sinai, which I mentioned, for example. In that overwhelming encounter with God, he fasts. It's a natural response. He simply fasts. And through Scripture, whenever God's people come into God's presence in a very, very powerful way, one of the ways they respond is by fasting. They just stop eating. In other words, the hunger for God, the thrill of worshiping God, it somehow intensifies into fasting. Interesting response, but it's something that God's people have done forever. That they just respond to his presence by fasting. The other time you see God's people fast is when they find themselves in overwhelming circumstances. A circumstance or situation in their lives when they feel overwhelmed and they know that they need God's help and God's power. When God's people through the ages are overwhelmed by their circumstances, the, one of the important ways they have sought God is by, is by fasting, by just giving up eating. They just stop eating. In other words, they let that hunger for God's help, that desire for God's presence, that intensifies into fasting. Nobody has to tell them to do it. It's just what the soul does. Fasting in Scripture is simply this natural response to overwhelming circumstances, an overwhelming need for God, or else an overwhelming encounter with God. But the response is to fast. Never instructed to fast. There's this tremendous freedom about fasting. You're never told to do it. You do not have to do it. But God's people have often responded through fasting. I suppose the question then is, if you and I never feel the need to fast, if we never fast, what does that say for us? If never in your life you've ever just responded or, or felt that need or desire to fast, what does that say? Well, perhaps one of three things. Number one, it might mean that, that you've never encountered God in that way. As I said, they responded to overwhelming, overwhelming encounters with God through fasting. Perhaps you've never drawn that close to God so that God could overwhelm you with his presence. So that that worship and adoration of him would somehow intensify into fasting. Maybe you're simply choosing to live your life at this distance from God. But God's people through the ages have not chosen to live their life at that distance. They've hungered and longed for God. And that desire intensified into fasting. Maybe the fact that you and I don't fast very often just simply says that we tend to live our life at a distance. We never draw close enough to be overwhelmed by God. Maybe the other thing it suggests is pride. Maybe you and I have egos the size of the state of Montana. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because God's people typically responded by fasting when they were in situations that overwhelmed them. When they recognized that they were at the end of their wisdom, the end of their strength, and they needed God's help. 
And that desire for God intensified into fasting. Maybe you and I just have never really got to the place in our lives where we're willing to admit that we can't handle it without God. Maybe it's pride that prevents us from intensifying spiritually to the place of fasting, to that desire for God's presence and God's power in our lives. Are you listening to me? Fasting is not a way of trying to gain God's favor. Fasting is a way of gaining God's presence. In Scripture, when we fast and pray, you don't fast in order to manipulate God. It's not that if I pray and add fasting, then God gives me what I want. That's not what fasting does. In my times of fasting, I have found that often my prayers are answered in powerful and amazing ways. But here's the thing. Through fasting, I eventually begin praying for the things that God wants. In the course of fasting, I forget about what I want. I begin to pray for what God wants. And that's why at the end of fasting, I often find, and God's people have often found, that God responds. God shows up in powerful ways. You don't earn God's favor by fasting, but you let that desire for his will, that desire for his presence and power, it intensifies into fasting. Do you understand? I keep using that word intensify because honestly it's intensity that many of us lack spiritually. There's just no intensity in our desire for God. Very little intensity in our worship. We need intensity. We need some power, some energy, some desire behind our religious acts. Are you listening? We need intensity. When I think about intensity, I think about the day Kenton Powell, as a kid, put that cat in the mailbox. Kenton, you remember that? Kenton was, how old were you, Kenton? Eight years old, children do not follow the example of our deacon. Kenton Powell got up early one morning before school. I don't know why the devil made him do it. Kenton put a cat in the mailbox, closed the lid, and went to school. What do you think happened at about 11 o'clock when the mailman came? Mailman opened the lid to the mailbox. What happens? (laughs) Yeah, the cat explodes out of the mailbox, goes up the mailman's arm and starts going around in the mail car, in the mail car, shreds the inside of the whole mail car and then busts out. It's intensity. (laughs) Intensity. Kitten comes home, gets off the school bus, mom and dad are on the front porch like this. Yeah, also intensity. Also intensity. I'm sorry, I know some of you really love cats, and right now you would like to remove Kenton Powell from the board of deacons. Uh, take him off. Uh, I just remind you, God's already punished him. He's, he's cursed him with baldness, and so he's suffered enough. It's intensity. That cat somehow bottled up in that mailbox. That mailbox can only contain that feline intensity for so long. Something's got to happen. You just can't continue to bottle up that kind of power, that kind of intensity. It simply will not be contained forever. Eventually, it's got to spill over into something else. And this is what I'm trying to say about your faith and mine. It's the important thing that is said in Isaiah chapter 58 about the faith of the ancient people of God. Because here's what you probably already thought as I'm preaching. Brother Tim, these people were fasting. 
they were fasting. And they were serious about their fasting. They fasted. They fasted voluntarily. Nobody's making them fast. They're fasting. And they're going to the temple every single day. These people are doing everything that we know that we're supposed to do. And yet somehow God does not accept their worship. What's missing? What's missing? What's missing in their worship is honestly, most Sundays, what's missing from our worship. Proverbs chapter 21, another verse. I want you to see this verse with me. It's on the screens. It should be on the screen here below. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 13. Read these words with me if you dare. Those who shut their ears to the cries of the poor will be ignored in their own time of need. You didn't want to think that verse was even in there, did you? Those who shut their ears to the cries of the poor will be ignored in their own time of need. God says, what do you think I want? You're fasting? What do you think I want? You just come to the temple? You just continue to come every single week to the temple? Do you really think that's what I want? Do you really think serving me simply adds up to filing into a public worship service and and mouthing your way through some hymns and some songs, putting some money in the plate, and then going back home and going about your business like nothing's happened because that's what God is trying to say. Nothing's happening here. Fasting and praying and singing and even worshiping in the temple, nothing's happening there, at least not anything that God's really looking for. Of course he's worthy of our worship. Of course we want to worship him. But if we think that that is the end of what God is asking for us, we are painfully misinformed. God wants something else from us. God wants an intensity in our devotion, an intensity in our worship so that it simply cannot be bottled up into a Sunday morning. If your faith can somehow be contained by one hour a week in church, then listen to me. Your faith is worthless. It's what the scripture says. It's worthless. What God wants is worship that spills out into something else. Worship with intensity so that when worship is over, we bust out of this place to go do something about those who are suffering. That's what God says. Worship has to build in its intensity and then somehow burst into compassion. It's got to turn into compassion. In other words, until our worship is somehow good news for the poor, until our worship is somehow good news for those out in the world who are suffering, until our worship, what we do in here, begins to reach the streets out there, God says, I'm not really impressed with it. It's not what I'm asking for. It's not what pleases me. And you're not exactly getting as close to me as you think. Those who close their ears to the cries of the poor will find their own cries ignored in the time of their need. wonder why God doesn't always seem to listen to your prayers? You ever feel blocked in your prayers? You ever wonder why God's not listening to you? Maybe, just maybe, God's not listening to you because you're not listening to the cries of the needy around you. I remind you, this is not a political message. This is a biblical message. God obligates us to care for the poor. And as I said, I know that you all do. I know that you do. 
In the last few weeks, we've talked a lot about caring for the poor and giving to the poor. So now, real quickly, I just want to talk very, very practically about how we do that. What kind of principles, what kind of guidelines do we need to keep in our lives from Scripture that help us know how to help and how to help intelligently? So take out a pencil or pen, write down these three things. Write down three principles for helping the poor. First, from Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. Open your Bibles, turn to that verse, if you will, or find it on the screen. Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. This is Jesus giving instructions to his followers. Jesus giving instructions on how to do his work in the world. And this is what he says. We're going to mix a lot of animal metaphors here. It's like old McDonald's farm for a second. I am sending you out as sheep among wolves. In other words, if you're going to do Christ's work in the world, it's going to be dangerous. There's danger involved, and it is not easy. If it were easy, everybody would be doing it. I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and harmless as doves. You probably heard that verse all of your life if you've read Scripture. Be as shrewd as snakes and harmless as doves. Jesus is giving us instruction on how to do his work in the world. And he says, be as shrewd as snakes harmless as doves. I love that. In other words, when it comes to doing Christ's work, when it comes to helping the poor, giving to the poor, you need to give eagerly, you need to give generously, and you need to give shrewdly. I want us to talk about that word shrewd. It's Jesus's word shrewd. Honestly, for me, a lot of times I would read this verse and I would think that shrewd must mean something like sly. I think about a snake slithering across the floor coming, you know, to bite me or wrap it, you know, around my neck and choke me. I think about a snake as dangerous and somehow deadly and probably suspicious and sinister, something that can't be trusted. But that's not what Jesus means here. That's not what shrewd means in this context. Jesus just means you've got to be smart. He's talking about using your brain. He's talking about thinking. The word here just simply means to think, to be shrewd. In other words, we're talking about wisdom. Not really an everyday kind of wisdom. This is a special kind of wisdom that you and I need to do God's work in the world. you got to be shrewd. you got to be shrewd. So when it comes to giving to the poor, following what Scripture says, we're always going to give eagerly because Scripture says give eagerly. And it says give generously. And I'm not even going to harp on generosity and eagerness because these things are assumed. You know this. We're going to give as much as we can and as eagerly as our hearts allow us to give. It's what scripture says. But also be shrewd. you got to be smart. Smart. Often I do not feel smart when it comes time to help somebody. I want to help. I honestly want to help. But sometimes I really get the idea that if I give them what they're asking for, I'm not helping. Often I feel like if I give them what they're asking for, I'm not helping them. Someone's asking for cash. They say they want cash for gas. But I can smell on his breath the alcohol. And something tells me if I give him cash, he's not going to buy gasoline. He's going to buy alcohol. And if an addict is buying alcohol with money I give him, I'm not helping him then. I'm hurting him. So somehow we've got to learn to be shrewd in our giving. I'm going to give generously. I'm going to give eagerly. But I've got to be shrewd. I've got to really put some thought into this, and I've got to figure out how I'm really going to help people, and you do as well. 
We've got to think about this. We've got to have a plan and a strategy. As a church, Woodburn Baptist Church in Franklin and Woodburn, we can do amazing things for God here. And God has put us in a place where we can really, really help the poor. But we're going to have to be smart about it. We're going to have to be smart. It is not simply as easy as setting up a desk and handing out money. That is not shrewd. That is silly. That is silly. In trying to help people, you can actually hurt them. And that's why Jesus says, be as shrewd as a serpent, but as harmless as a dove. In other words, we're supposed to be smart as a whip doing God's work. we got to be smart. But we have no intention in any way, in any shape, at any moment, are we going to harm anybody. We're harmless as doves, Jesus says. I'm going to help you, and my desire is always to help you, and it is never going to be in my heart to harm anyone. I'm never going to add to another person's suffering. Do you see what it says? So we're going to give eagerly, we're going to give generously, but we're going to give shrewdly. Shrewdly is Jesus' word. Second principle. This comes from Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 11 to 14. Once more, verses on the screen. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 is a marvelous, marvelous passage to go to when you have any questions about giving because Paul spells it all out here. And this right here is the passage that lets us know that Paul was not a TV evangelist. Not a TV evangelist. And it wasn't because he didn't have television. It's because of the way he explains how we should give. Second principle, write this down. Second principle for helping the poor, give what you can, not what you can't. Give what you can, not what you can't. Notice what Paul says in Scripture. Give in proportion to what you have. Whatever you give is acceptable if you give it, say the word, eagerly, give it eagerly, and give according to what you have, not what you don't have. You'll never hear one of those TV evangelists saying that. Give what you have, don't give what you don't have. Of course, I don't mean your giving should make life easy for others and hard for yourselves. You listen how practical this is? I don't want you to give yourself into poverty. I don't mean your giving should make life easy for others and hard for yourselves. I only mean that there should be some uh, some equality, equality. Right now you have plenty and can help those who are in need. Later, they will have plenty and can share with you when you need it. In this way, things will be equal. Isn't that beautiful how Paul's Christian mind works? He wants equality, but not exactly equality like certain politicians talk about equality. It's not that everybody has the same amount of money. That's not what Scripture says. We're not spreading the wealth in that way. What we're spreading is the compassion. What is equal is the generosity. Today, if I've got it in my pocket and you don't have it, I'm going to share with you. I'm going to share with you because that's what Christ would have me do. And I'm going to do it eagerly. And I'm going to give what I have, not what I don't have. I'm going to share what I have. If I have more than I need, then I've got plenty to share with you. And I'm not afraid to do that. I'm not afraid that if I share with you today, I'll be in need tomorrow. Because guess what? If I'm in need tomorrow, you're going to be there to help me. And that's how things are going to be equal. We're equally compassionate and equally generous. And none of us has to be all of that obsessed with taking care of ourselves. Because we know that we live in the body of Christ. 
and we're going to be generous. We're going to take care of each other. So give what you can, not what you can't. If you do not have it to share, then you're not obligated to share. Now that does not mean that in your greed and stinginess, a lot of you say you don't have it to share, but you do. You really, really do. Uh, honestly, if you can eat out a, a meal every single day of your life, if you can take your wife out to Outback or, or Olive Garden or wherever it is you go, if you can pile up at Cracker Barrel twice a week, you probably have more than enough. You probably have some to share. The thing is, we often confuse ourselves because our standard of living is so very high, we really don't know the difference between needs and wants. If we come back to humility and come back to practicality, we'll realize that God has given us everything that we need and more. And the reason we have more is not so that we can just live a higher life. We have more so that we have something to share. That's what Scripture says. God gives me more, not so that I can be more affluent than others. I have more because God wants me to share. So you give what you can. If you have plenty, you share with those who don't. But you give what you can, not what you can't. You give in proportion to what you have. That's Paul's principle. One last one. This is the big one. This takes us back to Isaiah chapter 58, verse 10. It's the verse that says, feed the hungry. But I told you, the Hebrew word there is very important and important to translate correctly. It doesn't just say, feed the hungry. It says, spend yourselves, and I love this, spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and help those in trouble. Leave that verse up there, chat if you will. Spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and help those in trouble. Notice the difference between feed the hungry and spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry. In other words, when it comes to helping other people, it is not so much that God is telling me to go out and empty my pockets. I may do that too some days. But if all you do is empty your pockets, you're not doing what God has asked you to do. It is not your money that you're commanded to spend so much as it is yourself. Spend yourself in behalf of the hungry. Spend yourself. Remember what I said earlier in the series, that, that truly poverty is not just a lack of basic things. It's not just a lack of food or a lack of shelter or clothes. or It's not simply a lack of a job or a lack of any of these things. You can't define poverty just in terms of material lack. Because if it really were just a material problem, then honestly, we could buy people out of poverty. We could just have money and give lots of money, and that way there would be no more poverty. But surely by this point in human history, you've recognized that money doesn't solve the poverty problem. Our own government, our own nation, throughout its history, we have pumped millions and millions and zillions of dollars in, into poverty programs. And they're not lifting people out of poverty because they can't. They never will. Poverty is not just a material problem, it is a spiritual problem. It's a relational problem. As we said last week, poverty is not just a, a, a basic lack of things, it's a basic lack of friends. It's a breakdown in relationships. And what the poor person needs on top of relief, if it's an emergency, on top of the food or the clothing or the shelter, what they need most is to have relationships repaired. The first relationship is relationship with God. They've got to be brought back into a proper relationship with the God who loves them and made them and who is their provider. 
got to be brought back into relationship with God and back into a proper relationship with their own selves. Often the poor people I meet have a devastated relationship with themselves. They have no dignity. Often they've totally lost that desire or that confidence that they could go out somehow and work. And God has ordained that all of us work for our bread. But the poor often have lost that sense of self. They've broken that relationship. They no longer even feel like they should or could work and earn their own way. Got to have that relationship with their own self, their dignity, their work ethic. It's got to be repaired. Brought back into relationship with their families because the poor have nobody. Do you understand that? Nobody. And often there's a broken trail of relationships and those need to be mended. They need to be brought back into a proper relationship with parents and, and children. Are you listening? And neighbors. In the Old Testament, the concern was that the poor would lose their place in the community. The poor have to be brought back into relationship with us, back into the community. They can't be invisible. They can't disappear into the darkness. So you understand, that's why we have to spend ourselves. If we're going to make a difference in our worship, if we're going to make a difference for compassion, if we're going to make a difference in the lives of people in need, then the only option is to spend ourselves, to get involved with them, to open up the circle of our lives to include them, people in need, people who are poor. Woodburn Baptist Church is a church that loves and welcomes everybody, and that means everybody. No favoritism, no nothing. Anybody who comes into this place will receive the same love, the same compassion, the same help. We're God's people, and we spend ourselves. So let me make a couple of things real clear. When it comes to helping the poor, there are really two kinds of help, and we usually only know about the first. The first is what I would call relief help. And this is the giving of clothes and food and money and paying of bills and helping with transportation. And understand something, that kind of help, relief help, is really only shrewd. It's really only useful for people in emergencies, for people who are in a temporary crisis who need food. If they do not get food, they will starve. That is what relief work is for, helping people in emergencies. But that kind of help, clothing and shelter and food, it's really not helpful when people become dependent upon it. If all we do is give food, if all we do is give money, then we're not doing the restoration that is necessary for truly lifting people out of poverty. Now, honestly, some of you are just like me. The reason I would rather bring cans to church it's because that way I don't ever really have to personally get involved with a hungry family. The reason I'll usually just give somebody money if they ask me for money is honestly, it's just a lot easier to give them a $20 bill than to really step in there and open up my heart and let myself get involved in the real mess of their lives. Honestly, it's easier to give money. It's a whole lot easier twice a year to clean out your closet and take your clothes to the Salvation Army, and that's a good thing to do. But that's a whole lot easier than really getting involved in the lives of people who do not have clothes. Did you understand what I'm saying? That, that relief work is just the very first part and it is the smallest part of helping the poor. Because that's not really the part that begins calling for me and you to spend ourselves. We can give our stuff. That's not spending ourselves. 
when I spend myself, I step in. I become a friend of the person who is poor and hungry and naked and and without shelter. I, I get involved in their lives. I learn who they are. And I try to figure out prayerfully and carefully what they really need. And I begin to work with them, not working for them, not giving to them, but working with them. That's what I would call restoration. Relief is the first step. It's a temporary step. It's not the most important step. Restoration is what's important. And that's the part that demands that you and me begin to spend ourselves. Spending ourselves. Some of you have done that. Some of you do it all the time, and God blesses you for it. I know God blesses you for it. Because that's what the scripture promises. It's what the scripture promises. You notice the last part of verse 10? Spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry. Help those in trouble. Then your light will shine out from the darkness. And the darkness around you will be as bright as noonday. You ever had that experience where you help somebody, and at the end of that, you say, my goodness, I think that did more for me than it did for them. Have you ever experienced that? Because that's what God promises. That's what's always going to happen. You let your worship build in intensity and spill over into compassion. You let your faith somehow turn into good news for those who are needy. Suddenly, for the first time in your life, things start to happen in you. You're going out thinking that you're going to change somebody else's life, but you know what happens? It is always your own life that gets changed for good. You step out into the darkness of somebody else's need, and what does the Scripture promise? Your own light is going to begin to shine like the noonday. I promise you, you can't possibly step out And do something for someone else that you aren't ultimately the one who is lifted up. Reach out your hand to pick up somebody else. It's going to be you that gets lifted up. Pray with me. Oh God, on Thursday, that man called me and asked for money. I gave him money. He needed a friend. Forgive me. God, today we're grateful for the privilege of collecting food for the hungry. There are empty bellies in our county, in our community. People who are hungry. We will give them food. Oh God, I beg you that you would help us always. And also, give them friends. Macaroni and cheese will fill a belly, but cannot satisfy a soul. Oh God, break our hearts. Help our worship to intensify into compassion. There's a world 
in desperate need around us. God, we worship you. We sing, we fast, and we forget about them. Oh, God, maybe we have forgotten in weeks, months, years past, but Lord, let us not forget them again. Oh, God, if Woodburn Baptist Church is, is to be a place where God's people worship and dwell, then let Woodburn Baptist Church somehow be good news for the poor and good news for the needy. Oh, God, if they find help and friendship nowhere else, let them always find it among us. Oh, God, I pray that today this worship, this word will intensify into compassion, real ministry, not inside these walls, but outside these walls. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things for the sake of the world. Amen. Stand together, please. The altar is open if you wish to come and pray. If you have a public decision to make, come to the front, and, and I'll receive you, and we can help you uh, voice for the congregation, whatever you need to make public. Uh, whatever your need, however the Lord is leading you, humble yourself. Let your worship intensify into doing the work of Christ in the world. Whatever he's asking you to do, do not say no to him as we sing together. Please, Andrew.